The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey everybody! Yo. Uh, that uh, the dulcet tones of Matt Tebby is what you're listening to there. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. My name is Ben Sternke. I'm here yep. with Matt Tebby, who's humming. I'm here he's too. He's just sort of he's just sort of humming song, today. I got the song stuck in my head, and oh, that happens. I to put me these all headphones the on and speak in this microphone, and I, I can actually it's like I can hear my hum a lot. Yeah, like, you yeah. can hear your hum. It's nice. Yeah. Very good, uh, anyway. friends. Welcome to another episode of our series, Being a Christian in the USA. Being a Christian in America. Today we've got an interview with David Swanson, who uh, wrote a book called Rediscipling the White Church. It's all about uh, racism and whiteness and how that affects our discipleship. And yes. uh, Matt, you were just sharing with me that uh, he was getting, as you put it, dragged on social media. Yeah, just he's getting... So David Swanson, uh, white white pastor, he's pastors wow. in a um, multicultural congregation. He's lived in a multi-ethnic neighborhood for decades in Chicago. Great guy, great book uh, mm-hmm. about how uh, racism isn't a cultural issue, it's a theological, spiritual formation issue. Boom. And um, mm. I'm telling you, that, like if we can just, if we could, as white Christians, if we could just reckon with the fact that um, racism is a theological crisis for us, yeah, and a discipleship crisis for us, mm. uh, boy, things would boy. start... Things would stop things, getting worse, I'll tell you that. Yes, yes. Things would start <laughs> turning around. Yeah, totally. I, I um yeah, I I I feel like some of the some of what I've been learning lately, I put this in one of our curated links uh lately, and I've heard you say something similar, Matt. Um just that uh like as we have and you know, I just speak for myself as a white person, kind of gotten gotten into the fray here of treating this seriously as a theological issue. Mm-hmm. Um we are getting a bit of pushback um, from people who don't uh, see it as a theological issue, or don't want to see it as a theological issue, want to see it as a cultural issue, or people who, um, I don't know, they think that um, they think that uh, we need to kind of do the both sides thing, you know, and, and that kind of a thing. Sort of uh, people stuck within the binary who are afraid, I think sometimes legitimately, of, you know, going down some, you know, this is slippery slope argument, basically, right? You're going to become Marxist or whatever. Uh, if you start t- treating uh, racism seriously as a theological issue. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, somebody said something on a call I was part of the other day that was that said, you know, they quoted Martin Luther King Jr., who said that in this uh, kind of fight against injustice, in um, 
advocating for justice, uh, racial justice, that we need to um, we need to build up our spiritual fortitude. We need to become more resilient. Yeah. In the face of opposition. We do. Um, that kind of thing. I do. Um, yes, I do too. I was just realizing how quickly I get fatigued and discouraged uh, when when I get the little, the slightest little bit of pushback, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, I was reading Hebrews 12 the other day, and uh, N.T. Wright's translation uh, is, is quite fun sometimes. And he, you know, in Hebrews 12, they have that little line there about um, how... Uh, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured, and the, the phrase that N.T. Wright used was, consider him who endured such enormous opposition. Hmm. And if you like let that weigh on your mind, it'll prevent you from becoming worn out and weary. Um, so anyway, so I was, I've been thinking about that, of just how like I have this need to build up uh, spiritual fortitude. And um, it's not just this stuff, but it was a bunch of other stuff uh, happening this week that uh, for me sort of caused me, this is like all culminating Thursday night. We have a discipleship group in our church uh, that I lead uh, with my wife. Mm-hmm. And um, Thursday night, uh, we, we got to this discipleship group and every single, we did a little check-in before we started and every single person, including me, was just feeling down and, and discouraged about you know a lot of different things. Um, and as we proceeded through just doing the thing that we do in our discipleship groups, which is just to pay attention to what God's doing, mm-hmm. pay attention to how he's at work in our lives, you know, in the midst of the discouragement, in the midst of, you know, feeling down and depressed about things. Like in the midst of those things, talking about those things, and, and we uncovered, you know, um, how God was at work in this one particular person's life. And I found myself by the end of that meeting feeling mm. so energized. Mm just so energized by and I, I think what I'm realizing is is like the Lord like provided for me hmm. the Lord provided what I needed as I took the step of faith of just participating in what he's doing right because I, th- I think the thing that I would want to do in a moment like that is like Netflix and chill like that would have been my preferred yeah. like if the weather was bad and we had to like and we had to like cancel uh, the discipleship group, I'd have been like, oh, that's great. You know, I can just, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I would have ex- experienced what I experienced if I hadn't have yeah. just gone through with it and said, you know what? God's here. God's at work. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know if that's clear, Matt, but um, it felt like a, it felt like a big uh, realization for me. Like, oh, yeah. when I participate, when I, when I seek first the kingdom, when I participate in this stuff that God is doing, despite the discouragement, despite uh, the, you know, and it wasn't just the injustice stuff, but it was, you know, it's the pandemic. It's everything that's just sort of like, feels like it's weighing mm-hmm. me down. But um, I feel like that's the place where we're going to learn fortitude. Um, mm. It's a place where I'm going to learn fortitude is just keep showing up in the places where God promises to, to show up, yeah. where two or three are gathered, you know. Well, we need to get to David Swanson. <laughs> we but do. But I do want to give you some homework, Ben. Oh. Um, I do want to give you some homework. Uh mm-hmm. You, you got. You need to find a safe place without your children around, and just Google mm-hmm. Netflix and chill, because it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean watching Netflix and just hanging out on the couch. <laughs> oh, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it does not. I'm revealing my age here. I, I have no so, idea. That that sounds like a really nice time, just sort of watching a show. I, I know it yeah. does. It's yeah. uh, it's yes, it's coded <laughs> language. It's coded language for like a booty call. Okay. Oh, is it really? Yeah, we're gonna hook up. Oh, okay. Well, Netflix and chill is. Hey, let's have sex. <laughs> I legit did not know that. I gave you homework and then I did it for you. Yeah, well, thank you. That's you know, <clears throat> let me Google that for you. Well, you I, already uh, knew what it meant. So well, I spend about uh, three hours a day reading Urban Dictionary just to stay hip. <laughs> just with to the, stay with up the kids. on things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so David Swanson right. interview today. This is a great. Yeah. He's a his book is a, is awesome. I know there's a glut of racism, uh, books on the market uh, from Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I've seen some, I, I mentioned he was getting dragged on social media. Um, I, I think his book is great. I think what mm-hmm. David has to share with us is great because it comes from on the ground, living with people in the margins for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, the critiques he gets are mostly from people that haven't been on the mm-hmm. ground living among the marginalized for decades. Yeah. Listen to people with firsthand experience. Yes. He's don't no Johnny to, come lately. Don't listen to uh, wealthy, affluent, 
people who pass as white people or um or or people who parrot their talking points when it comes to racism. <laughs> yeah. We don't need more of that. We need more David Swanson though. So enjoy this yep. today. Enjoy this yep. uh this interview. It's a great interview. Um, and hey, if you want to uh, check out, we've got a workshop. We're just uh, we, we've planned as well oh, yeah, uh, an online right. workshop for the first time called in Church in the Wild for the first time in forever. Church in the Wild, being the body of Christ, when we're not in charge anymore. Um, just what does it look like to cultivate um, a winsome, authentic Christian witness in the midst of post Christendom? A lot of our instincts about witness mm-hmm. mission are colonial. And um, we want to just share some of what we're learning mm-hmm. about this. So that's November 13th and 14th. It's a Friday night and Saturday morning. It is going to be online. Um, for more information, you can go to gravityleadership.com slash church. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, hope to see you there. We're excited about uh, offering this as an online workshop. Yeah. All right. Here's David Swanson. David Swanson, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thanks you both for having me. Really appreciate it. Yes. Yeah, good to have you. David's a pastor in Chicago, and we've been kind of longtime social media. I've been a I've been sort of a stan, you know, stalking fan of yours for a bit and appreciated your voice from afar. And you've written a book now, so your voice is actually sitting right here on my desk. Uh, <laughs> and the title of the book is Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. Uh, David, you have just published this book, and we're in the middle of a fairly profound cultural moment mm-hmm. with the accumulation of uh, press and media and video of black people being, you know, murdered basically yeah. Yeah. Uh, every day. It seems like. Uh, so we want to jump into this book. I think it's an incredible book. But first, would you introduce yourself to our audience? What uh, what you do? What you spend your time doing? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm a church planter. Uh, we're church is celebrating 10 years this summer. We had planned a nice little celebration, and like many churches, are mm. figuring things out week to week. And so, hopefully, we'll get to do that in person at some point. But God has been faithful over these 10 years. Uh, we set out to plant a multiracial church on the south side of the city because the church we were a part of was also an intentionally multiracial congregation and wanted to see new church plants around the city. And there were people from this neighborhood, the Bronzeville neighborhood in, in Chicago, who were a part of that church, who were you know, basically discerning as leaders in the church that this would be a, a, a good neighborhood for that kind of a church. I did not intend to be the pastor of this church. We were all convinced that a multiracial church in a black neighborhood needed a black pastor. And that mm. just was obvious to all of us. And mm. uh, through a long uh, series of, uh, of events, uh, I eventually was called by that congregation to, to pastor the church. And very, very thankful to God for that. Uh, so I'm married for a little over 20 years, two boys. We live um, we live here on the south side and, and just love uh, love where we live, love where we get to serve. And uh, the church itself is you know, relatively evenly distributed, African-American, Asian-American, and white, uh, though the mm. neighborhood that we serve is predominantly, predominantly black. Yeah. Mm. So David, this may seem like an obvious question, but I'd love to hear you uh, wax whimsical on it for a bit. Mm-hmm. Why did you not want to be the pastor of this church? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple things. Uh, one, the 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 reality is that most multiracial churches in in the United States are pastored by white men, and hmm. uh, I, my own conviction, which I share with others, is that one of the things that marks true reconciliation in uh, the the American church landscape is when white people are willing to submit to people of color as their pastors and, and leaders. Yes. And so for me, one of the things I always look to in multiracial congregations is who's in leadership and are white people, if those mm-hmm. churches have white people in them, willing to submit to those leaders and, and follow their leadership. Mm-hmm. So that's a strong conviction of mine. So obviously, you know, being that person uh, was not something that I, I particularly aspired to. So that the- theologically and sociologically, that's a piece of it. But, you know, just to be really frank, I had just profound insecurities about being able to pastor well in this context. 
Hmm. Uh, all of the things that I perceive as my own strengths weren't particularly strong in this context. And where I was wise was was not particularly helpful in this context. And so uh, just on a personal level, it, it was a kind of a turning inside out experience. And hmm. I'm profoundly thankful for that now, of course. But um, it, it was a it was a, a dying to self that um, I went into with a lot of fear and trembling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so you became kind of the white pastor of a multicultural church, and it sounds like that's a perfect setup for what you call cheap diversity. Yeah. Right. Right. That's the that's the uh, opening salvo of a church that settles for uh, cheap diversity. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So th- I I think that when when white people and I'm a pastor, so I'm thinking about Christians particularly. When, when, when we think about reconciliation, what we tend to have in mind is a kind of representation, a diverse representation, so that, that white Christians tend to think about progress toward racial justice as being marked by a, a diverse representation in the room. So if the worship leader is a person of color, right? Or if there are, if I can look around the sanctuary and identify, you know, a handful of African-American congregants, some Latino folks, well, then I, as a white person think, well, we, we've made some real progress here. And there's sociological reasons behind this having to do with how we think about relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem, of course, is that the culture itself of that congregation can remain entirely white in its makeup and its assumptions, and you still have that racial or ethnic or cultural uh, diversity as, as a part of it. That's cheap diversity, and 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 it's problematic uh, because it does not actually honor the the lived realities of the the people of color in the congregations it it caters instead to the the norms and the the levels of comfort of of the white congregants and so at a moment like we're in right now when there's some profound public racial trauma happening Mm -hmm. that congregation that has some diversity in it might engage a little bit but is still primarily concerned with the comfort of its white members. Yeah, yeah, and what yeah. this communicates to everybody else in, in the room is that we're not actually interested in the, the material sources of your suffering. Mm. Uh, we're, we're much more interested in how we in the dominant culture feel about ourselves right now. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, what did you hear? How, how would you then summarize cheap diversity? Yeah. It, it seems to me that cheap diversity is, I mean, it's... <laughs> I don't know if this is unfair, but like it feels to me like inherently exploitative without, you know, I mean, like without meaning to, I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't think anybody's trying, but it, you know, we're so formed into this that right. we're formed into as white people, we're formed into being concerned about white feelings, including yeah. ours yeah. and sort of patting ourselves on the back to say, oh, look, we have some black people in our church or, mm-hmm. you know, some, some diversity. We're happy about this. Um, but that's sort of where, where things end for us because we don't inherently you know, we're we're still inherently exploiting yep. these black bodies for our own feelings of like, oh, see, we're we're woke or we're we're doing okay here mm-hmm. uh, because we've got some diversity. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think that's exactly right. It's no okay. longer appropriate in this country to be uh, racially homogenous to to, to 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 desire racial homogeneity, particularly in a church setting. Right. Um, right. So so we've had to pay lip service to. Yeah wanting diversity to wanting reconciliation it's just that it's we've we've never interrupted the exploiting systems of white supremacy and the kind of racialized hierarchy of our society so we can add a little bit of this diversity and and feel good about ourselves right because not now obviously we're not racist because i got this black friend here right or you know our (laughs) worship leader is latino or or whatever the the case may be so that i think exploitative is absolutely right we're we're still using people as a means to an end Mm. yeah Mm. yeah so david your book is perhaps different than other books i've been reading or maybe our audience has been reading because you center a call for the church uh, that this is a problem of discipleship yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, and you quote Dallas Willard, uh, who's uh, he's near and dear to our hearts. Um, yeah. Uh, you had me at Dallas. So, uh, <laughs> so ha- my question is like, most white people I know that want a multiracial church don't like aren't wishing for themselves to be racist. Mm-hmm. Right. 
It's like we're intending to be racist or want to be racist. Mm-hmm. We just find, and in your book, you talk about how we're just formed that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you can you unpack a bit how how are we formed in in racialized ways of being that cheapen diversity in our churches? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about about Dallas Willard is that he he identifies the fact that discipleship can happen in lots of different places. Right. That it's it's not simply those of us who are Christians who are being discipled. And and this is what I think mm-hmm. white Christianity in this country has missed. We have missed the ways that we are discipled racially by our country. This is really, really important because our 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 country is not racially neutral. Our our country is is built on certain assumptions of, that have to do with a, a racial hierarchy, and mm-hmm. that that's just baked into into the system of our country. And and this is most evident when you look at any sorts of of metri- metrics or outcomes uh, divide you know organized by by ethnicity or race. Hmm. You know, white people are always going to be thriving more, are going to live longer, are going to have more access to wealth, to healthcare, et cetera. Um, you know, we live in a country where you can you can accurately predict how close someone is going to live to a toxic waste site simply by their race. That that's the the landscape, right? And mm-hmm. that does something to us. That that is forming us on a, on a very very deep level. It's reinforcing uh, this assumption about. who who is most fully human and and who is not. That's a mm. very sort of ugly thing to say out loud. Yeah. But but that's what's at work on the level yeah. of our assumptions and our desires, right? It's not cognitive. I'm not sitting here thinking those things, no. right. right? We're not taught this in school. Absolutely yeah. Yeah, not. Yeah. Not in any yeah. kind of a blatant way, right? right, now, right. now, on a more subtle way in terms of like what we're not taught at school, right? Or whose narratives and voices are left exactly. out. That's what's reinforcing those things. And I move through this world not thinking one thought to the next, but 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 navigating in and through through what I how I imagine, how I love, how I desire, right? Yeah. So so that's what we have missed, that that yeah. kind of malforming racial discipleship that is at work on our hearts and, and, and on our assumptions. And that that's what the white church has has utterly ignored. Yeah, you mentioned this in your book too, but that's what hmm. Eddie Glaude Jr. calls the value gap. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. And it, there's yep. racist ideas that contribute to the value gap. Um, one of the books I read that kind of woke me up to this because as a white person, I think we're conditioned to hear what you just described, all this data of racial disparity and chalk it up to individual decisions making, uh, and, or, uh, your culture, i.e. black person Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. BIPOC, your culture doesn't look like white culture. And that's why you have these problems, right? So you don't have this, uh, a dad in the home or, you know, there's all these different things, right? But you quote the work of Emerson and Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, that book just rocked me when I read that 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, there's uh, conceptual tools that yeah. that white people, that inhibits white people from seeing systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Could you mm-hmm. name one or two of those? Because mm-hmm. uh, I think they're, yeah, I think they're super important. And not only do they, do they keep us from seeing it, they these, these tools actually um the way they work is that when we attempt to pursue racial reconciliation we actually end up doing damage oftentimes so the tools that they identify are anti-structuralism which is this sort of allergy to to any ways of 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 thinking about what's wrong in the world through systems or structures individualism which is this sort of idea of this this pure autonomous individual navigating his or her way through the world uh, unencumbered by system structures and relationalism which is when I identify something that's wrong in the world, like racial injustice, this is evidence that relationships have been broken, have been have been uh, afraid. And so the the fix then is that relationship. So we go back to what we were talking about earlier uh, about cheap diversity, right? So when your tool is relationalism, if you're a part of a majority white culture church and you say, yeah, you know what? Racism exists. It's out there. So what we need to do about it is make cross-racial friends. You Be know, nicer so, to black people. Let, so let, let's welcome black people into our church, right? Let's do an mm-hmm. occasional joint service or, or, or what have you. Um, and now I have some friends. Now I have some acquaintances. We, we fixed it. Maybe not mm-hmm. quite like that, right? But that that really is the, is the assumption. Mm-hmm. And so these tools allow us to kind of pursue... A, a form of justice that does nothing to interrupt the injustice, mm-hmm. right? That is that is continuing to wreck real, real world havoc on yes. bodies and communities. 
Yeah, and I I think I've heard, this is the reason that I've heard some people say that they actually don't like the term racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. I know that's kind of a stand-in for a lot of you know what we good things that we want to see happen, but I think racial reconciliation assumes that there's these two races of people who are just not getting along and they're a little bit agitated at each other. But that's not the problem, right? The problem is hierarchical. It's right. systemic. It's about justice. For it's not just two groups that are like, oh, those people are weird. I don't like them. It, you know, that would be prejudice or bias. You know, which you know that's that's an issue too. But we're talking about something much more deep, much more fundamental. That's right. That's that one of these groups has been considered less than human. That's right. This is why I talk about segregation in the book. You know, white people we love to talk about division uh, Mm. as though there was this thing that just happened to us. We had we are divided. Like okay, Mm. that's that's no, we had agency in this. Right. (laughs) We we participated in this. And so I think about things like housing. uh, You know white people tend to think about where we live as just a matter of personal preference, right? I like to live in the suburbs or Mm -hmm. I like to live in this neighborhood in the city, what have you. In fact, where we live has this force of, of a, of a history of federal, you know, policy behind it. Uh, you know, where certain people could get federally backed loans and others couldn't, where certain people benefited from the GI bill and others didn't. And, and this is how we accumulate wealth in this country. Um, so, so the segregated nature of our lives and then how that works itself out into expressions of injustice is not a, a de facto experience, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a, like you were saying, Ben, there's a, hi- there's a hierarchy, there's force of, of government uh, and policy and, 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 and power behind that. That's what we have to actually own and yes. acknowledge. If we're going to make a difference, we actually have to tell the truth about that stuff. Otherwise, we're going to always do this sort of bland, yeah. sort of let's get together, yeah. you know, which does yes. nothing. And I, and I think it's difficult. It's difficult for people who, you know, they learn about that history, the GI Bill and the housing policies and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's hard for people to realize that they're, they're connect. Like, I didn't create that policy. Sure. I wasn't right. alive when the GI, you know, like I, I wasn't part of that. So how can I be part of the problem or why do I need to own that? Yeah. Um, and I think that gets to the the allergy against structures and systems that you were talking about, where I... I think, and individualism, honestly, like I think of myself as such an individual that sort of just emerged out of nothing, mm-hmm. you know, who just has ideas that, you know, that I'm not affected by anything, you know, that it doesn't feel like I should have to take responsibility for some of those things when, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a really, it's a really strong conceptual tool that insulates us Absolutely. from doing what would be required to bring justice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this is, uh, you know, I, I, this is half formed and it's something I'm kind of working out right now. So I, I hope, I, you know, I can do that safely here. And if not, you all can. Draft podcast formed is, speculation. Oh, good, 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 over okay. half half formed things. We're just like, hey, I'm going to try out something <laughs> and we're going to record it and release it to the world. And if it's heresy, someone will forgive me. Know. Yeah, forgive me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure I'll someone. repent later. Anyway, well, go here's, ahead. here's what I'm working out over the past month. I've had multiple white people say to me, I just didn't know. Mm. And and they're appealing to their own ignorance as a way of saying, now that I do know, I'm going to do better. Yeah. Um, and I I get that. Like I understand that for each of us, there is this, each of us who are white, there is this kind of waking up that happens. So yeah. so I do think that's a stage, right? But at some point, I think spiritual maturity for white Christians requires that we say, not just I didn't know, but I chose not to know. I, I mm. willfully didn't know. I was content in my ignorance. Yes. Uh, if we don't do that, then then what are we saying about all of the other moments of profound suffering that have been evident in this country? Like, what was was that death not a not enough? Was that instance right. of police brutality not enough? Right. You know what I mean? Um, so, so this this is what I'm trying to figure out right now. Like, how do we as white Christians talk about our own ignorance and how we're waking up to that, but then go deeper and, mm-hmm. and, and say that you know our confession has to include the fact that we wanted that, that we were okay, that we were complicit with our own ignorance, and yes. then if we say that, then we also have to say complicit then with the suffering of sisters and brothers of color who who suffered under that ignorance. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love. 
and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. Part of this for white people, at least for me, is it was it was convenient for me to yeah. so go back to normal. Yeah. It was convenient for me to, you know, to just sort of avoid the risk of yeah. putting my body on the line, stepping yeah. out in some way in solidarity. Um, and there was real fear in that yeah. for me. You know what I mean? Like realizing there's there was actually there's a strong sense of fear of what the ramifications of my solidarity would mean for me and for my family mm. and for our comfort, you know, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. I think that's right like on. What, what, what were you, what did you feel afraid of? Uh, I felt afraid of, um, I guess just, uh, white people. Like <laughs> I felt afraid of uh, racists sort of attacking me. Mm-hmm. White fragility. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I was afraid of, I was afraid of other white people noticing that and yeah. turning on me like the backlash. and that, yeah, the backlash and that, I don't know what form that would take, but it was just, you know, it's like a visceral fear in my body of like, yeah. Oh, I don't want that. I don't want, you know, people to vandalize my home if they know that I'm mm-hmm. marched in this thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I guess there's an awareness of there, like, but I, I hear you of, of saying like, I, then for me, it's not enough to say, Oh yeah, I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I have known, right. um, but also to say, yeah, and there was a real fear in me and that's why I didn't step yeah. out. And that did directly contribute over the past whatever years, since I did sort oh, of mm-hmm. have an inkling of what was going on, it did contribute yeah. to the suffering of my black brothers and sisters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. Yeah. As, you're, as you guys are talking, I'm thinking of what contributes to this complicity. And David, I want to move into the second half of your book where you you actually lay out some key practices to disciple us out of this uh, racial ignorance, racial disparity. But I'm thinking about how, you know, 70 years ago, there were um, explicit laws that were mm-hmm. racist. Mm-hmm. There were signs on water fountains, right? Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. our racism was explicit and blatant and we like reveled in it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what's happened over the last 70 years is that racism has gone out of fashion. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to, we've had to willfully, we've had to drive it underground and make it hidden in secret mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that we don't, so that we're not outraged or scandalized by our complicity in it. Mm-hmm. So, so we use coded language like yeah. law and order. Yeah. Right. And yeah. we, we, and then we can tell ourselves a story about that coded language that, that um, yeah. excludes racism. Mm-hmm, right. Even though it's explicitly racist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, so I, f- as I think about how long it took me to unravel this, it was, you know, Brianna Taylor gets shot in her house, and I'm like, man, that's that's too bad. Or I wonder if they found drugs, mm-hmm, or you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, or uh, mm-hmm. uh, boy, don't don't uh, who does your boyfriend have a record? Probably mm-hmm. should think about having a better boyfriend if you don't want if you don't want to be executed in your home in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? Like, right. so all these stories that keep me from reckoning with the data and the way we're talking about and just noticing how those stories contribute with kind of this willful hiddenness of white supremacy in our culture. And once you begin to see it, I mean, it's a reason why they use the word woke. It's like you begin to see it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it's devastating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's devastating. Yeah. And I, I, so my, my sense about this is that, um, Again, I'm I'm a, I'm a Christian, right? So I try to think about this through that lens. This white innocence, the sense of, of our own innocence, runs mm. really, really deep. Yes. Um, and how incompatible is that with the gospel, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the gospel that we proclaim, you know, the grace yeah. that we say that we are utterly dependent on. Um, it's just is is incompatible with that 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 sense of. And it's a, it's a form of self-righteousness, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like somehow I'm exempt from this. Somehow I've not been tainted by this. 
Um, and, and I do think that that's part of what, what we need to think about when we're thinking about discipling actual white women and men. Part mm. of that discipleship is, is uh, leading them away from that deep sense of their own innocence. Mm. Now, part of that requires that we help. I mean, Matt's talking about the stories that we tell. Right. We, we need to tell the truer story, right? We need to tell the truer historical story uh, and how that intersects with our own sort of uh, you know, Christian story. But we, we got to move people away from that, that sense of innocence because it, as long as we're fighting for that, then, then we are willfully not going to see the kinds of truth that, that yeah. we have. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that has been, that's been a part of my formation as a leader and, and a disciple maker trying to call, you know, predominantly white church that we pastor, mm-hmm. calling people into that is realizing that one of the ways that I was, you know, formed in racism was that I'm, I'm very concerned about hurting white people's feelings mm-hmm. or the fact, you know, that bruising their egos a little bit. I'm more concerned about that than I am about speaking the yeah. truth. And so yeah. I've had to change. I've had to realize that and say, oh, no, this needs to be said. Yeah. I don't know how people are going to react, you know, and I'm not trying to be a, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. I'm not, but I'm, this is I'm your journey. To, this is your story here. I'm trying to preach the truth, you know, yeah. uh, about what's happening and, you know, and trying to, and, and one of the things I realized is that I am, I am very concerned about hurting white people's feelings. I, so, I do think that is, Again, that's one of those characteristics of our racial discipleship. Yes, is, you know, comfort and safety are yes. <laughs> some of our highest, highest values, right? right? And then yeah. that gets that gets subsumed into our Christianity. Yeah. And so th- this is this is one of the weird things about white Christianity is that <laughs> that we are one of the only groups of people who somehow think that following Jesus is about comfort is about yeah. our own safety and security, right? Like yeah. that is not the experience of, of pretty much any other group of Christians right. in the world, including right. in our own country, right? And so yeah. in our congregation, you know, we have black and brown people who, who sort of in, in inherently understand that discomfort is part of how the Holy Spirit works, that, mm. that even times of suffering and even injustice can still be places where God works in a powerful way for you, intercedes in your life, moves things around. Mm-hmm. Those of us who are white, on the other hand, how do we experience those moments? Like, I got to get out of here as quickly as possible. We got to do whatever is necessary, yeah, right, yeah, to return yeah. to that sense of equilibrium. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I'm constantly wrestling with, and I don't think I do this all that well, is when I stand be- before my own congregation, how do I keep white people at the table mm-hmm. without in any way dishonoring the people of color in our church? And that is something that only the Holy Spirit can do, right? Like that, that balance, given our racial formation, is impossible, I think, under our own strength. But, but simply yeah. holding that in my own kind of heart and mind, I yeah. think, allows some space for the Holy Spirit to do what only God can do in that point. Like if, yeah. if God's going to be moving in all of our lives, despite that kind of formation yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. 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 And I think that's an important uh, thing to remember as well as leaders is like the point isn't like hey go go offend as many white people as you nope. can like that's nope. not the point nope. like I think there is a pastoral sensitivity required to yep. say, like you said keeping them at the table it does require like recognizing okay I'm worried about hurting their feelings and I know that them in their formation right now getting their feelings hurt or having their comfort disrupted it feels like one of the worst things that could happen to them mm-hmm. and so this is gonna feel very threatening mm-hmm. and so I like, I need to just take that into account yep. as I as I proclaim the truth, as I speak to them, as I disciple them. You have to yep. you have to consider it as a, mm-hmm. from a pastoral perspective. Yeah. And David, this is why your book is so important and helpful, uh, and it's because um, maybe primarily for many white Christians, the voices that they're listening to to learn about racism are not Christian voices. Yeah. So they're yeah. people outside the church who are naming a justice issue for people inside the church. And then people inside the church are trying to adopt that justice issue, but sometimes they get labeled as, uh, you know, Marxists or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so the theory. the biblical theological work that you are doing is vital. And so I'd love to pivot for the last part of this interview to the second half of the book where you describe, here's what true solidarity means, and it's all about discipleship. Mm-hmm. And you in your chapters are seven practices that get us into true solidarity. Um, 
And I, I just love to maybe mention, I'm going to mention them, and then I'd love to talk about two of them if that's okay, because yep, uh, people need to buy this book. Uh, the the <laughs> seven practices are table fellowship, kingdom preaching, subversive liturgies, children's ministry of reconciliation, practicing presence, salvation from superiority, hmm. and uncommon friendship. Hmm. Maybe, maybe just to intro this, how did these begin to take shape? Where did these come from for you? How did you discover these? Yeah, I, so a couple of things. One, I hate reading books that make me feel like I have to completely reinvent the wheel because I just don't have the, the energy for that anymore. <laughs> and so I, I really did. I wanted to write something where ministry leaders and pastors felt like, okay, this is asking me to, to reimagine what we're already doing rather than mm. throwing everything out and starting from scratch. Um, so that, that, that's a part of it. But the second is that any kind of, of re-discipling is going to have to address those three characteristics of white Christianity that we talked about earlier. And I think the corporate practices of the, of the church are, are ripe for that. They're latent with that potential. So, mm. so intentionally embracing the fact that we need to think about our systems and structures, intentionally thinking that, or thinking that we have to move beyond just one-on-one -on -one relationships, intentionally thinking that we've got to think corporately rather Rather than just individuals. Great, and I think I think what you're naming there, the, naming these things as practices as well, is really helpful because I I think one of the one of the things that you know uh, I've noticed that we do in the West, and maybe this is a white thing, I'm not sure, but one of the things we do is that we've noticed a problem, and we think we can teach our way out of it. Yes, if we do a sermon series on how individualism and relationalism and and anti-structuralism, yeah. how they're bad. Yep. Three weeks, three week sermon series that'll solve it. Yeah, but that's not going to do it. We actually have to inhabit some practices. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I and I, man, I've said this so many times in my own sermons. You know, if you just really, really believed this, then the, yeah, well, that's yeah. just not how that's not yeah. how human beings work. Right. You know, I mean, take, our beliefs matter, but right. um, take know, some I, time and believe it harder right now. That's in right. your mind, right? Then you're going to be help. fine the rest yeah, of the yeah. week. You know, <laughs> if only that's yeah. just not yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, David. So uh, the two the two I want to chat about more are subversive liturgies and um, gosh, salvation from superiority. I just pivoted and I decided to talk about that one instead of another <laughs> one because they're all like, incredible. So Ben and I are in the Anglican tradition. We've got a book of common prayer. Mm -hmm. This this prayer uh, book was developed initially to bring something ancient out of touch into a context that could be. So you didn't have to know Latin. You could say it in your language, right? So there's yeah. a contextualization of liturgy happening at the founding of our tradition. Uh, and now there's talk in Christian circles about um, the phrase I hear is decolonizing the liturgy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? I would love it if you could speak a bit about, um, I, I don't think you use that phrase, but you do talk about subversive liturgy. And I wonder what the similarities are between those two things and how you've worked that out on the ground mm -hmm. in your church. Yep. I'm not a, in any way an expert on um, decolonization, especially when it comes to theology. I'm going to be talking to Randy Woodley today, who's a, an, an indigenous leader who's recently written a book on decolonizing evangelicalism. So I'll have mm. maybe better thoughts later on today about this. Um, but when I'm when I'm thinking about what I, I I'm thinking about what the liturgy can do, right? Like I think so. I'm not uh, I, I'm not high church. I'm not Anglican. I I'm, I'm relatively low church in my formation and continue to be to this day. But I have a high appreciation for the liturgy and for the Sunday morning liturgy, um, and what it what it is meant to do, right? It this is how we 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 pray with our bodies as a people, as a community, not simply yeah. as individuals. It's how we together, and this is the key thing for me. This is how we together inhabit the 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 narrative, the story of scriptures. To think about kind of how Robert Weber talks about this, mm. and to pray with our bodies together. Um, I, I just am not sure that that we have emphasized that note strongly enough in the white American context. I, I think that many of us who, who kind of run through our liturgies, on, uh, regardless of sort of how they're structured mm. or not, are still experiencing them on a very, very individual yes. level. We come to them with our own individual questions. So what I wanna try to do in that chapter is ask, like how, how, could, we, how could we hit that note of, of koinonia and fellowship louder so mm. that how we come to the liturgy and what we're expecting the liturgy to do to us in the gathering, in the press, 
praying, in the coming to table, you know, in, in the passing of the peace, et cetera, that, that we are actually anticipating that this thing is forming us together. Um, yeah. when, when, so I had a sabbatical, uh, man, it feels like a decade ago. I think it was just a year and a half ago, two years ago. And so for, for a month, I attended one of my friends' church here in the neighborhood, and he pastors a Church of God in Christ church, which, if you know, sort of, uh, um, you know, your charismatic history, this was the, the, the black, you know, church that, that, that went one direction after the Azusa yeah. Street revival. Mm-hmm. And so this is a very charismatic congregation. And, um, you know, I love it. I absolutely love being with them. And one of the things that you will sometimes hear leaving that church after, after being sent, uh, after receiving the benediction is, you know, we had some church today. <laughs> and, and and to me, that's a subtle thing, but it it's the difference between how many white people leave church and saying, "Well, what did you think about the sermon today? You know, mm-hmm. and what did you think about the children's message today? What did you think yeah. about the, the 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 hymn selection today?" It's it's cognitive, it's individual, it's evaluative, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. you know, many of the congregation members leaving my friend's church are, are they're located within a community. They're un, they're at anticipation as they come to church is we are coming together. We had an experience of this racist society this week that in some ways shared some. Similarities. Now we're coming together to church, anticipating together a word from God, a move from God that we can then celebrate together. Mm. I, I think that it, that that language betrays a really important difference that goes beyond some kind of a well. This culture talks about it this way. This culture talks about it that way. That's what I'm trying to get my hands around in that chapter about liturgy. What what would we need to do and adjust and reimagine so that the people coming to our you know predominantly white churches are saying we're coming together. We were formed together this week as white people. We were deformed together this week. And so we are hungry and thirsty to be put back together. So I'm starting to preach right now. So let me back to the you know, we need to be put back it. together yeah, by yeah. the liturgy, by how we pray, we sing, we worship together, yes. Yes. and have this corporate experience of the of the of the power of God together. And then yes. be resent out into a world that is going to again try to be deforming us. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's the difference between, um, yeah, sort of observing something, thinking of yourself as apart from something that I'm looking at, evaluating, thinking about, allowing in to a certain degree, and Mm -hmm. maybe not if it's not my cup Mm -hmm. of tea or Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. rather than the the posture of I'm I'm all in, I'm part of this body for good or for ill, you know with the people that annoy me and, you know, uh, I'm disappointed that person's preaching today, but like, but we're part of this. We're having church today. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. That mm. is a big different, a uh, big difference. I wonder, um, I want to get to the other practice you want to talk about Matt in a second, but we're recording this, uh, during, uh, COVID, uh, Corona tide as yes. we call it, yes. um, in our church. And, um, I, I wonder if you have, maybe you don't have, I mean, this, you know, you probably couldn't have anticipated this writing your book, but like, I wonder if you have thoughts about, cause we've been wrestling with this. We haven't, we've been on, you know, zoom, mm-hmm. uh, for church for, I don't know, 15 weeks now or something like that. Um, and you know, a lot of what you just talked about is like, my heart hurts right now. Cause no. I'm like, that's no. what I want to get back to. But like, it's so hard to know, you know, when that's going to be safe and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. It's it's made us realize that we miss it, but it's also made us realize, like, man, this is it was powerfully formative for us, and we're trying to figure out how that can happen now. Yeah, I have I, I have maybe two thoughts. One, I do think for many white Christians, this is this this experience is latent with possibility hmm. i've i've watched the ways that uh, our our white members and then many of our members of color are experiencing this moment and and to to make a massive generalization what i have found is that many of our members of color and black members in particular have a sort of uh, access to to a memory of god's faithfulness during times in the wilderness that hmm. many of our white members simply do not have and so even the, the 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 imagination of the individual members, you know, of, of who God is for us now and what God is doing now uh, is, is different. And so I, I've 
I've come to be somewhat hopeful that one of the results of this time, one of the discipling results of this time can, can be that wilderness experience. We're not trying to just get through this, but we actually expect yes. God to be here in the wilderness, forming us, discipling us, shaping us right now. Um, so I, I would want to be looking for that. If I'm serving in a predominantly white church, I would want to be looking for how are we doing that? How are we teaching? How are we, you know, how, how are we preaching? What are the notes that we are trying to sound? What are the stories mm. that we're telling, the testimonies that we're sharing? Where in history are we drawing from to talk about similar times when God has been faithful to his people? That's one. Uh, the, the second, and we're struggling with this, but we are, we're trying to find every way possible to, to put community members from our church in front of the camera. We're doing the, the live thing on, on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this coming Sunday, we're going to show pictures of, you know, all of the, the students in our church who are advancing from one grade to the next. Uh, we, we serve, you know, high school students in the neighborhood. They didn't get to have their celebrations this year. So we took their pictures and they're holding up their signs. We're going to celebrate all of them. Anything that we can do to push against the individualism that I think this moment is engendering us, I think mm-hmm. is actually re- is, and, 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 and sacrificing some technical prowess for the sake of that is yes. worse in my mind, right? Like let that be oh, messy yeah. Yeah. Um, in order to, to keep people in front of you e- in front of each other at this time. Yeah. Dude. Man, that's, that's so helpful. Thank you. Yep. It's super helpful. We only have time for one more, but you described this salvation from superiority. Uh, David, uh, most white people don't realize yeah. that we think we're superior to everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you come to see that in your life and what, what have you done to dismantle it? I think it's a, there was no one moment for me. I think a, a long, a long process, uh, that mostly involved a proximity, um, mostly involved people who are willing to tell me the truth, um, you know, reading what I have access to and kind of chasing down those, those rabbit trails. I do think though, a really big part of it for me is, is theological. Like I, I believe I'm a sinner. I really do believe that. You know, I tell, I say this to my church, I'll say, um, you know, imagine I'm standing in front of 100 and 120 people, about a third of those are white, third of those Asian American, third of those are black. I will say, uh, um, I, I breathe this racist air. What that means is that there will be times when I say or do something that has been infected by that racist. I will be racist in some ways. And when that happens, when I do that, I'm asking you to tell me so that I have the opportunity to confess that Mm-hmm. And to be reconciled and to receive your forgiveness. So yeah. I, you know, that's, it's still hard, right? Like I still don't like that reality, but I, I actually yeah. believe that's true. I, right. um, so I, I, I think for me, it's not a leap to, to once I kind of understand history to go, well, yeah, clearly I'm going to be impacted by that. Why in the world would I be exempt from that? Um, and, and as a Christian, I don't know of any better way to, to think about dismantling any of this than to, than to move away from the, the lean towards self-righteousness and instead lean really hard into repentance. And con- like, I think about this a lot in church settings, you know, when, I, I'm a church planter. And, and oftentimes church planters are starting churches because they're reacting to something, right? They had a bad experience of some kind. So we're going to do it different. I think that's actually mm-hmm. really a, a dangerous tendency if we don't interrogate it a little bit, right? Because yeah. if now we're doing it right, then we are immune to anybody telling us that we've hurt them, that we've wounded them in some ways, yep. right? Like yep. our, our salvation has come from, we're the ones who've gotten it right. When yeah. again, as Christian people, our salvation comes from confessing and acknowledging that we get it wrong all the time, that we sin all the time. So yeah. that I think when it comes to, to, to white people acknowledging our own tendencies towards superiority, it's the same thing. It's just admitting like, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, I think it's hard for white people to, I'm speaking as a white person, so I see you white people. But it's hard for us to reckon mm. with we can be culpable, complicit, and cooperate with things we didn't volitionally choose. Because this it's such a strong assumption that undergirds our culture. Like uh, you know, people describe it different ways. You talk you talk about individual I'm the sum of my individual choices. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Or meritocracy. People mm-hmm. get what they deserve. And mm-hmm. I've made good choices, so I deserve good things, and you've made bad choices, so you deserve bad things. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a fundamental shift in how you see the world to reckon with I did not intend to be superior over sure. anyone. Sure. 
Yep. And I'm superior over most everyone. That's you almost need to get saved for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. And so that that's uh, in that chapter on on salvation. I, I'm. It's probably the most far out there one for me because I just haven't mm. seen this one yet. Mm. I, what, what we see instead with white Christians is this sort of second conversion to racial justice, right? We 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 say yes to Jesus, and at some point down the road, we have the second conversion. I just wonder what would it look like for a a, a mostly white church in its efforts to proclaiming the gospel to other white people to acknowledge this as one of the things that we need to be saved from so that a yes. person who's coming to Jesus for the first time, who's starting to follow Jesus for the first time, understands that this is part of it. Um, yeah. I've not seen that a whole lot yet, but wouldn't that be amazing if that was just part of our yeah. discipleship right from the beginning and we didn't have to have these sort of like second awakenings? Yeah. To, I, I realize we're always waking up to more and more of the implications of following Jesus. Sure. I get that. But in our American context, it just seems yes. to me, man, that should be one of the ones from jump that that we understand we, we need salvation from. Yeah. 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 Dude. Yeah. So good. I, I wish we had time to unpack all these practices. We don't. And then uh, we also want to commend this book heartily. I appreciate that. I, I think, um, I mean, like I said this before, we desperately need the the deconstruction of white supremacy to be married with our discipleship as we follow Jesus. Mm. And they're not two yeah. separate projects. That's right. That's right. right. That's right. It's We're doing, as Christians um, who follow Jesus, we're doing one thing. Mm-hmm. So um, That's right. Right, and so I, I think your book does much need to work, David, to hold those things that can seem disparate, that our culture wants to make disparate, actually, yeah, yeah, together, and shows that there's congruence and alignment with a theological and biblical tradition, yeah, and the trajectory of new creation and where we're all headed. Yes. Can I say one, one thing about that real quick, Matt? Yeah. You know, especially like, so if, if there's some pastors listening to this right now, one of the real sad things about not holding this together is younger white people who start to wake up to the realities of racial injustice and then go, well, what else hasn't my church told me? You know, what else is my church complicit with? And I've had way too many of those conversations with younger white Christians, and I've seen way too many younger white Christians walk away from faith to to pursue racial justice and and seeing the two is, and man, is there anything more heartbreaking than that? And so again, if we can, if we can actually hold together what was never meant to be separated in this way, we're doing a really important service for a a younger generation in particular, I think. Yeah. And you, you may have to be willing to have some very difficult conversations yeah. with older members of your congregation who yeah. think you're turning into a Marxist or it's whatever, right. whatever it's challenge right. they're going to give you. Yeah. But hey, if you want to, you know, if you want those young people to stick around, <laughs> if I mean, for no other reason, you just want young people to stick around, like take this seriously. Yeah. I had a message in my DMs. I've tried to speak up a little more on Facebook recently. Uh, it's one of the places I get to touch people that I, I'm just not around locally. And, you know, Facebook's a complicated mess. Um, but it's also, and it's an evil company, but it's also a place where you can actually touch people that are translocal. And I had a, 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 a girl who's an atheist. She's a woman now, but she was in my youth group. She was a girl then. And she's like, Hey, I'm an atheist and I left the church, but, um, thank you so much for speaking up as a Christian yeah. about yeah. this stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I, th- I think we, we have not reckoned with how many young people have left the Christian church yeah. because not only do they not care about this stuff, but they're cooperating and even advocating for it. Yeah. You know, they're laugh at Kung flu jokes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that is a, we are, um, we're blaspheming the Holy spirit when we do that. Yeah, That's yes. right. And yeah. unbelievers can see it better than us. So mm. all I have to say is we need a way out of that and a forward. And I think you do that. The book then is called, uh, once again, redisciplining the white church. From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity by David W. Swanson. David, if people are stirred, uh, if their hearts are strangely warmed listening to you <laughs> talk about this, uh, where can they connect with you maybe online? I have a pretty simple website, dwswanson.com, and everything kind of links from there. So that'd be great. dwswanson.com. Awesome. All right. David, thanks for your time. Hey, enjoy that conversation later that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little envious of that. Uh, I'm, I w- I'd like to listen in or hear what yeah, you. Yeah, it'll be on. It'll live on Facebook for forever. So you can find. It's going it. to be on Facebook. Great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah great. Yeah, great. Yeah, we'll All right. Thanks, David. Appreciate Peace you. To you. Both. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. 
Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.